are experiencing technical difficulties, and I'd say, eh, forget it. Except I got brought show and tell this week. I don't want to forget it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I put a little extra work in. Tom's got lessons. Um, we're still doing last week's lessons, so if you need one of last week's lessons, raise your left hand. And if you need this week's lesson, raise your right. No. Um, raise your hand. What Tom has, in addition to last week's lesson, I thought, since I got a little spare time, probably on Sunday, we'll supplement. So this week is not just biblical literacy. This is biblical literacy plus. We're going to get a little extra material. Um, if we've got some more handy, Miss Pfeiffer's hand was up. Oh, you left last week's at home. So anybody that needs last week or this week, where's Mark Kraber? Oh, where's, all right, so we've got Tom handing out. I'm wondering if we need some more help handing out. Anybody that can help hand out and hit this side would be a big help. And uh, how are the technical difficulties coming? Yeah, or you can just, okay, or take me straight in. I'm not seeing anything out of that box. Just go straight into the thing so I can get rolling. Okay. Um, let me tell, uh, some of you were not here last week. Um, I, I laughingly told, uh, I don't remember, Ray or somebody down front I was talking to, I said, yeah, this week I figured um, nobody would be here that's normally here because it's Labor Day weekend, so we'd have visitors. So I was kind of thinking we'd start fresh and clean. Let me take a step back and let you know where we are. If we were on the PowerPoint, this would be on the screen. This is not critical. We'll get this on PowerPoint going in a minute. We have been going through the Bible, trying to learn the key stories of the Bible, the key facts about the Bible, where the Bible came from, that help us understand it and be biblically literate people. We started with where we got the Old Testament. We've marched through that. We've marched through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel. We are in 1st Kings. And in the book of 1st Kings, we found some interesting things, but we've hit a point where we're going to do a little more background work. Let me tell you why. Um, hey, we're getting it, huh? Yeah. Input A, no input. Um, <laughs> Ah, the things I could tell you. Um, here, <laughs> oh no, 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 not about you. Um, the uh, <laughs> it's about the equipment always. Um, here's what I want to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna use this time to fill in a little bit factually. We're gonna fill in, have a little archaeology lesson. Uh, if we had James Pritchard in here, uh, he's a world famous uh, archaeologist who would probably uh, uh, be better suited to tell you this information, but he's not, so you're stuck with me. In 1928, there's a fellow named Mahmoud Azir, who is a Syrian farmer, and he's out plowing his field, getting ready to plant, and he hits something. He says, gee, I've hit something. Wonder what it is. He gets out, he starts looking. He starts peeling back some hard pottery type things and founds a burial tomb that's got a bunch of pottery in it. He quickly runs and gets someone who knows antiquities and says, I think I found something significant. In fact, he had, at a town that's called Ras Shamra today, uh, he found the uh, uh, basic uh, top layer, if you will, of an ancient town called Ugarit. The ancient town was called Ugarit. Now, this is north of Israel, about one kilometer in uh, uh, from the, the Mediterranean Sea. And he uh, said, what do we do? 
and teams of excavators came in and started excavating this site. The site is still being excavated today. But over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, a lot of discoveries were made at this site. The, the, um, most places in this area, most ancient towns in this area, you don't have a lot of writings from them because most of the writings were done on papyrus, which is the paper type. Uh, uh, it's, it's taken from reeds and they flatten out a bunch of papyrus reeds and then they set one set like this and they, they put another set on top of it going perpendicular, um, which made it real easy to write in one direction but not the other, by the way. But uh, uh, the papyrus has rotted over the, the time. So if you go into the eastern or more desert parts where they didn't have papyrus, we've got more copies of, of ancient documents because it was typically written in clay tablets. And the clay tablets have lasted. Well, for some reason, this town of Ugarit kept most of its records on clay tablets. And some destruction came upon the town that was rather sudden because some of the clay tablets found in the excavation had not yet been baked in the kiln, but were still in the kiln about to be baked. The discoveries have been incredible. Understand that this language itself that these were written in had never been known to a modern man. Um, it was the kind of thing, if you saw, <laughs> we're getting there. You know, y'all are doing great. If you saw the writings, which uh, uh, if I had the Elmo working, I'd put it on the screen. Uh, this is my basic grammar of the Ugaritic language. I don't know if you've got yours, but uh, <clears throat> I brought mine just in case you didn't. It is, um, the, the language itself looks like a bunch of tomahawks to me. But what it is, is they use these wax styluses to... Uh, um, uh, work in the uh, uh, um, clay, the soft clay. And so the, the sh letters are not made like ours where we have ink that flows, but instead it's made like they were kind of digging it out. And uh, they're real boxy kind of uh, tomahawk-looking letters. And this was an unknown language when it was discovered. And since 1928, uh, li linguists have learned how what the language is. I mean, you can now take at a few schools Ugaritic. And uh, um, the language was, the, the learning process for learning the language was accelerated because uh, it, there was, um, there, there are three basic Semitic languages, but this would really be helpful with modern equipment. Um, <laughs> if, if, if this hand is the, the land that borders the Mediterranean Sea right here, it, you go north of Israel and, and, and everything to the north on the Mediterranean Sea was one kind of language. Everything to the west or to the east, I guess, the desert lands was Akkadian or some other kind of language. And the stuff to the south was Hebrew and another kind of language. Well, this is up here at the top of the index finger. Have we just decided to do it this way and thought, hey, that'll work great. Okay, um, this is going to be kind of a goofy... Can you all read that or is that just... Is that okay? We can live with it. Uh, for those who might be listening to this on audio, it's a putrid green, yellow, mucusy color. Um, which doesn't seem to bother anybody in the class but me. Um, okay, we've just blown through all of this. We did that without it. Um, yeah, okay, vile green, I heard. Um, we have... Um, um, we're going to... Let me finish what I'm saying about the Ugaritic. If, uh, um, 
if I were to write Ugaritic uh, for you, which I am not a good Ugaritic writer, but this is what I mean when I say it looks like tomahawks. Um, the letter B, for example, if is a tomahawk that goes up like that with two tomahawks that go down. Okay? Can you all see that? Yeah, that's the letter B. And then the letter um, 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 L, for example, and this will be significant in a minute. The letter L is just kind of these three tomahawks going down together. See, and they take those styluses and they just draw their line and then kind of carve it out at the end to make the tomahawk head. And so, and, and they wrote uh, backwards like uh, good Semites would. Um, so we have here, for example, the word for Baal. Now, this will get significant as we go through the lesson. Let's go through the lesson. This is I, I get juiced about this stuff. Y'all are probably bored to tears. But No, no, it's all right. Thank you. Okay, so let's get now in the context of the Bible, and then we're going to plug in your new learned knowledge of Ugaritic to really expand your horizon and open up 1 Kings. Let me add one last thing about Ugaritic. This town was destroyed 1200 B.C., which is just 300 years before uh, the time period we're looking at. Now, you and I think 300 years, wow, that's a long time. 300 years ago, there were not cars, there were not planes. There were. Uh, listen, for people living in our age, 300 years, the last 300 years have been a quantum leap forward in the information and development and industrialization of mankind. Back then, 300 years, a drop in the bucket. Not much happened over 300 years. So in terms of, of the destruction of that city, it is extremely relevant to the biblical passage that we're going to be reading, uh, at least what we've learned from that city's destruction, I should say. Um, remember, we're at a time for Israel where Israel's not one nation. It's had its civil war and it's divided into two. The northern part is still called Israel. The southern part is called Judah. And the book of Kings bounces back and forth between the northern Israel and the southern Judah. Northern Israel is loaded with evil kings. They're all evil. And the Bible goes through them. The kings are evil not only in the way they treat people, but in the way the kings have brought into Israel Canaanite religion. Canaan... The Ka'anu um, is, is the word that was used back then. Those are the people to the north of even Israel. The Canaanites were supposed to be totally driven out by the Israelites, but the Israelites never did so. And the Canaanites have their own religion. And the Israelites were being influenced by it. It might sound odd to you, but it's actually a fact that uh, uh, is repeated in our day and age. How many people, either themselves, or maybe their children, or maybe their siblings, or maybe their friends, have grown up in the Christian faith, but then decided to leave it for something new, which sometimes is something very old. And so we have people who want to get into the new age stuff, which is actually kind of old age stuff, or Eastern mysticism, or... Um, uh, I was talking to my dad about this, and my dad, no, it was Chip Hurd, related it back to uh, Flip Wilson's The Church of What's Happening Now. And I'm not sure that's what it is, but, but the idea is, you know, the, the, there's a church near our home that um, uh, uh, is, you know, gets around the trees and holds hands and sings, Morning Has Broken. 
and and won't move the church from the neighborhood where we are because the vibes are really good and the convergence of the spirits are there. And it's the church that, in my non-Christian way, I wanted to get up early on Sunday morning while they're worshiping and blast out deep purple smoke on the water or something through the speakers just to liven them up a little. But I didn't do that, and, and I'm trying instead to be a Christian. But the influence of other religions and ideas is something we have today. Some of us have an influence in our lives, grow up in the church, grow up, or even now live with the Lord in harmony, but we take influences from the outside to direct us in what's important in life. For some of us, it's not a new religion, it's our friends. It's what the neighbors down the street have that we wish we had. It's uh, materialism, or it's what feels good, either on the outside with our body, or what makes us feel good inside. And we try to find our nourishment and our meaning in life through things other than the Lord. Well, this was happening then, and they were taking Canaanite religion. Now, Yahweh is our word that God gave Moses. We talked about this last week, but we've got some new people here. I don't want anybody to miss this. It's extremely important as we go through the text today. Yahweh, whoops, I always misspell it since I said Jan does. That's Y-A-H-W-E-H. Yahweh is translated in the Bible as Lord, and we know it's Lord Yahweh because it's all capitals, though the last three O-R-D are small capitals, right? That's the name of God. A good Jew would not ever pronounce that name. It was blasphemy. It means I am. No one has the right to pronounce the name of God. No one is holy enough. If you pronounce the name of God, you got stoned. We read in the Bible about one man who pronounced the name of God. It's not translated that time as Yahweh. It's translated as I am. Do you know who that man was? Jesus. He said, before Abraham, I am. In the Gospel of John, he's saying Yahweh. Before Abraham, Yahweh. And the Jews pick up rocks to stone him for saying Yahweh. But he should be allowed to say it. It was his father. And through him, our father as well. So we say it. Um, There's another word for Lord. In the Hebrew, it's the word Adonai. And it's also translated in our English Bibles, Lord, but you know the difference because it's what? It's got lowercase letters for Lord. Capital L, little O-R-D. And so when you're reading your Bible and you see this capital L, little O-R-D, Lord, you know, it's just the general Hebrew word, Adonai, which just generally means Lord. When it's talking about Yahweh Himself, Yahweh Himself, it's capital L, smaller capital O-R-D, Lord. Now, this is the faith that was given to the Israelites, the understanding that was given to them on Mount Sinai. God gives them the Ten Commandments. The first one starts out, I am the Lord your God, thou shalt have no other gods. Right? That makes Israel a different nation than any of the others in the Canaanite area. The others are what we call polytheists. From the two Greek words that that basically means multiple gods, many gods, or pantheist. From the Greek word pan, which means all, and gods. The idea is that, that there were lots of gods. Now, when we think of mythology, we think of like Greek mythology, right? You remember studying that in school or something, or reading about it? They had the god Zeus, and they had, you know, all these other gods. All of the pagans around the Jews were polytheists. 
They had a pantheon. They had a, a, a whole slew of gods. Israel was a monotheist. Only one God. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema that we talked about that was quoted by every good Jew that was put on their doorstops, that was put on their tassels. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. That's Yahweh, your God. Yahweh is one. Okay? So this is what the Jews have been taught. And when the kingdoms divided, the northern kingdom, the, the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, said, we got to get away from Yahweh worship. Because Yahweh worship happens in the south at the temple. We start worshiping, we keep worshiping Yahweh up here. Everybody's going to go to the south and pretty soon they're going to want to just be one country again. And I lose my kingdom. So the northern king started out by setting up a couple of golden idols. And said, we'll just claim that those are the God that led you out of Israel, out of Egypt. And, and that's the way, um, uh, substitutions for God happens. Usually it's not a 180 degree turn that we do. Usually it's a small little diversion down the road that seems innocuous at most. And for good reason. And then pretty soon we find as we walk down that road, we turn around and we are nowhere near the road we were supposed to be on. The enemy works that way in sin in our lives. He works that way in our belief system. So um, um, that's what happened to the northern kingdom. By the time you work through some of these kings, um, um, oh, that's the northern kingdom. Okay, by the time you work through some of these, Jeroboam's evil. He starts them down the road. His son Nadab's evil. He's king. He gets killed. Basha's king. He gets killed. Elah's king. He gets killed. Zimri's king. He gets killed. Omri's king. He gets killed or dies. And all of these kings are evil. And all of these kings die. And all of these kings take them further down the road. And then enters the worst king in the history of Israel. His name is Ahab. Ahab's the son of Omri. He marries a pagan named Jezebel. And they make a decision to purposefully cleanse the nation of anybody that worships Yahweh. Let's get the old religion of Judah out of our country for good. If you're a prophet of Yahweh, you die. It's ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing of anybody that, or ideological cleansing maybe is more correct. Ideological cleansing of anybody who subscribes to the faith of Yahweh. Instead, they decide to worship Baal. Now, enter Ugaritic, the town of Ugarit. Not much was known about Baal and Baal worship outside of what the Bible has until the discovery of this town in 1928. But you see, the discovery of this town that we started out talking about in 1928 set forward a whole lot of pottery that had a whole lot of writings in it. And the writings, some of it were contracts. Some of it were school tablets of kids learning how to write. Um, because some of it were, were inventories and things, it made it easier for the linguists to learn the language because some of the, 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 the writings have the Ugaritic word and then they put the Akkadian word next to it. And so the, the people already knew what the Akkadian meant and they could figure it out real quick, relatively. Um, these tablets and pieces of pottery and ceramics have a lot about Baal. They give us a lot of the understanding of who Baal was. Understand, Baal was one of many gods. Some people, some of the pagans believe that Baal was the chief god. Other pagans believe that Il was the chief god. 
regardless. Baal himself had a lot of legend or mythology that went with him, and I want to talk about it for a minute. Um, this is the background information. Here's a picture of him. Well, this just really isn't going to work very well. Let's dim the lights a little bit. This is Baal. This is an actual stone rendering of Baal. Baal is the man here. You can see him holding a sheaf in his left hand. In his right hand, he's got a thunderbolt. And I found someone who redid the drawing, uh, or redid the relief in a drawing. You can see here the little sheaf of, of uh, uh, I don't know, some kind of tree or limb or, or whatever. This is a lightning bolt in his hand. Can you all see that okay? Okay. Now, let me tell you why he's got that. Baal, or Baal Hadid, as he's also called, Baal is the storm god. Baal is the rider of the clouds. His ship is a cloud. Baal is the god of lightning and thunder. Baal is the mightiest of warriors. All of those are direct quotes out of the Ugaritic material. Baal is the source of rain and dew. When Baal had fights with the gods, for one time he had a fight and he went to the underworld for seven years. And for those seven years it did not rain. When Baal has his house built, they put a window in his house so he can stand at the window and shoot his lightning out and send his rain out. They didn't have running water the way you and I do. They didn't have the complicated irrigation systems that our farmers do. They had limited irrigation. But this was a group of people who couldn't go to the grocery store and buy groceries. They had to grow what they ate. And without the rain, they literally could starve to death. The rain was the, the center of how they, they set their calendar, the center of how they set their lives. They needed the rain to grow anything for themselves, and they needed the rain to grow for their livestock. So these are people... For them, the rain was the most important and the reason Baal was the most important God to the Canaanite pagans is because he was the God who sent the rain. He was the God who sent the lightning. And without Baal, you don't have rain. And without Baal, you don't have lightning. With Baal came fertility. With Baal came the, the soil's fertility at least. And, and the crops and everything. So if you've got a God up there in charge of the rain, in charge of the thunder, in charge of the lightning... And if he gets mad or if he goes away, then you don't have any of that. you got a serious problem. This is the Baal. This is the Lord. Baal can also mean Lord. Hadad was his name. This is the, the Baal that King Ahab and Queen Jezebel instituted and propagated as the worship for Israel. The Baal who is responsible for the rain. The Baal who is responsible for the lightning. The mightiest warrior of the gods. That's who, O Israel, you are to worship. You worship this old Yahweh and we kill you. Now that's the scene, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I, I pulled a quote out. And I, I brought the Ugaritic, but I can't show it to you. I'm not sure... We'd be reading it that well anyway. But here's a quote. Yes, also Baal will make fertile with his rain. With water he will indeed make fertile, harrowed land. And he will put his voice, thunder, 
in the clouds and He will flash His lightning to the earth. That's from their Bible, their myth of Baal. Now, we've got a little more understanding of what's called Near Eastern Archaeology. And you see how this has illuminated what was already a very powerful story in the Bible. You'll also see how the Bible is so consistent with what archaeology is revealing. Let's look at the Bible. Into this type of a, of a country, worshiping Baal, comes Elijah. Elijah's name itself. E-L is God. The I at the end. L-E means my God. And Yah is an abbreviation for Yahweh. So Elijah enters the picture and his name literally means Yahweh is my God. And he's entering into a country where any prophet of Yahweh is put to death. Yahweh is not to be worshipped. Yahweh's old religion. It's passe. It belongs to those Yehus in the south that don't get enough rain anyway to even understand. You know, the, the southern part of Judah was uh, of Israel that, that, they, that had been broken off. Those were the deserts down there. And it just makes sense. They weren't worshipping Baal down there. Because if they had, they wouldn't be a desert. Baal's got the water. This is the thinking that's going on in northern Israel. Elijah enters the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. And Elijah, uh, that's a famous sculpture of him. We don't know that that's accurate. It does not date back to the 900 B.C.s. Um, Elijah says the following. He says, okay, I'm Elijah. Yahweh's my God. I got news for all you Baal worshipers. No rain. No rain. We have a drought coming. It's not going to rain until Yahweh sends the rain. This is a direct affront to Baal worship. This is not just an affront to Baal worship. This flies in the face of their whole theology. This is taking, you don't, I mean, they had theologians, they had priests, they had people who taught this in the schools. They didn't have a separation of church and state. You went to school or you went to wherever. You trained, you learned. You got taught that Baal was in charge of the rain. And we worship him because without him we don't get it. And this prophet comes in, Elijah, the Tishbite, and he says, My name's Elijah. Yahweh's my God. And I got news for you. As the Lord, and it's Yahweh, in the text, 1 Kings 17.1, as Yahweh, the God of Israel. You may have banned Him, but He's still the God. I got news for everybody in here. You may not worship Yahweh. I may not make Yahweh Lord of my life every day, but He is still the only God there is. And He is still my God, whether I claim Him or not. This country may not put Yahweh in its rightful place, but it doesn't change the fact that Yahweh is still the God of the United States of America. He's the God of the world. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And Elijah makes that proclamation. Elijah says, as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years unless I say so. It's not going to rain and the dew's not going to come forward when Baal says so. It's only going to happen by the word of the Lord when I say so. 
Okay, that's not just heresy. That's a direct front, affront to everything that Baal worship stood for. And yet that's what happens. With that, Elijah goes into hiding. And he's gone. He's gone for three years. We talked about the widow of Zarephath's story during that last week, so I'm going to leave it alone. Three years later, there's been no rain for three years. Baal is not God. Yahweh is God. No rain comes. Three years later, everybody, by the way, over this three years has been searching for Elijah. King Ahab's really upset. He'd like to get this problem fixed. So in chapter 18, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. That's the word of Yahweh went to Elijah. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe. Ahab summoned Obadiah who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in Yahweh. While Jezebel, Ahab's queen, was killing off all of Yahweh's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden in two different caves, 50 in each, and had given them food and water. Ahab says to Obadiah, you know, you got to go get us some help. Go through the land to all of the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep our horses alive so we won't have to kill any of our animals. And, and Obadiah goes out and starts looking, and you know what he finds? He finds Elijah. Elijah says, go get King Ahab. I want to talk to him. Obadiah says, oh, don't do this to me. I go get him. I bring him back. You're going to be gone. He's going to either think, A, I was lying or teasing, and he's going to kill me, or B, I wasn't strong enough to bring you in, and he's going to kill me. Please. Don't. And, and Elijah says, don't worry. I'm going to be here. I want to talk to him. Go get him. So Ahab comes in. And uh, um, um, when Ahab comes, uh, uh, he... Uh, <laughs> Obadiah goes to meet Ahab, tells him. Ahab goes to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Troublemaker? And Elijah says, I have made trouble for Israel. You have. You and your father's family have. You've abandoned Yahweh's command. You're following Baal. Now, summon all of the people of Israel. Get them from all over. And y'all meet me on Mount Carmel. And you bring all 450 of Baal's prophets with you. And the 400 prophets of Asherah. Asherah was a, a woman who was a consort of Baal. A, a goddess who was the consort of Baal. Um, and so Ahab sends word throughout Israel. He gets all the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah uh, goes before the people and he says, How long are you going to waver between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, you follow him. Let's just sort it out right now. And we'll play this game on Baal's turf. We'll play this game by Baal's rules. So Elijah says, Here I am as Yahweh's prophet. I'm the only one here. Baal's got 450 of them. Get us two bulls. They can take dibs. They get first pick. They pick any bull they want. Let them choose first. They cut the bull into pieces. They put it on the wood with the altar they've built, but they can't set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and I won't set fire to mine either. Then you call on the name of your God... I'll call on the name of Yahweh and the God who answers by fire. The flash of lightning God. That'll be the Lord. 
You got your pictures of Baal with his big old lightning bolt. He had his house built with a window so he could throw it down to earth. You want Baal to be God? You let Baal answer. You worship Yahweh, let Yahweh answer. And so the people said, well, that sounds like a good idea. And it begins. The prophets of Baal, they start calling on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they made. About noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. He could be on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. You gotta wake him up. So they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Boy, it'd be easier to worship the Lord. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Y'all come over here to my altar. They came. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. He took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. Jacob, you remember if you've been in the class, Jacob was the one whom got the name Israel, that the whole country was named after. And in memory of that, with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, he dug a trench around it large enough to hold a bunch of seed, about 15 liters. Um, He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces. He laid it on the wood. Then he said, hey, that's not enough. Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering. They did. He said, do it again. They did. Do it a third time. They did. So now it's soaked with water. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Yahweh, answer me. So these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Then, no dancing, no slashing, no shouting louder, louder, louder. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench, lest there be any doubt about it. When all the people saw this, they fell face down on the ground and cried, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them put to death. Tremendous scene. And the biblical scene is powerful in itself, but when we understand what archaeologists have been able to show us about Baal, it's even more profound, if possible. It just maybe underlines parts of it, because we see this was not just a fight, Yahweh versus Baal. This was a fight in Baal's backyard. And God, Elijah says, this was my backyard before you were ever even conceived of as being a god. So, um, Yahweh 
is the only God. And having done that now, um, um, Elijah says to, to Ahab, uh, if I were you, I'd get home pretty quick because it's going to rain. Now that we've established who brings the rain and the lightning, look out, it's really going to rain. So Ahab doesn't really challenge Elijah here on the spot. Instead, he gets in his chariot and starts heading back home. I think ultimately he wanted to go back and tell Jezebel because that's who he always went sniveling to when things didn't go his way. Um, but uh, he turns around and heads back home. And, and the word is out that he's going to talk to Jezebel. And something very interesting happens to Elijah. I call it the thrill of victory. He runs. He's scared to death. He's just defeated 450 prophets of Baal. He's just defeated Baal himself. And he's running scared to death of Jezebel. He's afraid of what she's going to do to him. He runs and runs and runs. Um, I'm going to cut it short. He finally finds a broom tree. He sits down under it and he says, Lord, kill me. I can't handle the fear of Jezebel. Even the holiest of people. God can rout the biggest victory in the world. And it just seems sometimes after those mountaintop experiences, when we go into the valley, it just feels so dark. But God is still God. And God uh, says uh, here, get a, uh, he's led to a cave, not leave, leaving to, uh, to a cave. Uh, he's leading to a cave. He goes to a cave there. And God says, stay there, come outside of the cave, I want to talk to you. And Elijah comes out and there is a, a huge um, wind storm that happens. Huge wind storm, very loud, blowing down the trees. But God wasn't in the wind. Then there was a huge earthquake and the earth is shaking and the rocks are shaking and the mountain's shaking. God's not in the huge earthquake. Then there's a huge fire that just engulfs things. God's not in the fire. After the wind, after the earthquake, after the fire, there's a gentle whisper and God ministers to Elijah. And God says, I'm not going to leave you to Jezebel. I will take care of you. And tells Elijah what he needs to do. Well, um, meanwhile, let's go back to Ahab for a minute. And I want to try and, and get in a couple of minutes of this before we close. I could spend a long time in First Kings and that's not fair to the class. Um, there, Ahab's having some success in some battles. He's actually going out there fighting some people and winning. And he's feeling pretty good about it. There's this guy named Naboth, though, who owns a vineyard. And it really upsets uh, uh, Ahab because Ahab wants his vineyard. Ahab offers to buy it. Buy it. No, Naboth says, no, I'm not going to sell it to you. So Ahab goes home sulking. The Bible says he's sullen and angry. Sulking. I don't know if you sulk when you don't get your way. Um, um, different people react differently. Some people yell, shout, and scream. Some people do that very quietly through sulking. Um, um, Naboth uh, doesn't give Ahab what he wants. Ahab goes home and he's sullen and angry. Jezebel says, why are you sullen and angry? He says, Naboth wouldn't sell me his vineyard. <laughs> Jezebel says, oh, now, 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 I'll get your vineyard for you, you silly little king. And she proceeds to go tell her guys to go kill Naboth. So they go kill Naboth. She says, now Naboth's dead. You can have his vineyard. Okay? You know, be a king, not a sullen and angry little boy. And um, um, now that story's in there. And that story's got importance because out of that story, Elijah prophesies uh, the way uh, Ahab and Jezebel will die and that their blood will be licked up by the dogs on the street. Um, Jehoshaphat, 
meanwhile, is the king in the south. Remember, we still have Judah. The king in the south, he worships Yahweh. He's a good king. He's following the ways of the Lord as best as he can. And he decides we need, we the south need, the Judah need to join up with Ahab and the Israelites to go whip this king that needs to be whipped. So Jehoshaphat comes up and says to Ahab, all right, buddy, I know we're different countries now and all, but we have a common heritage. We need to go take some property back from the king of Aram that he stole from us. I figure it's going to take both armies to do it. Are you in? And Ahab says, I'm in. And Jehoshaphat says, not so fast, not so fast. Before we go, we should go ahead and get a word from Yahweh to find out if we can go. You can't understand the importance of this story if you do not understand the difference between Yahweh written as, um, you know, Lord like this and just plain Lord written like that. Because the Bible doesn't specify, uh, doesn't, the translators don't tell you this is Yahweh, but Jehoshaphat specifically wants a word from Yahweh. And um, the response of Ahab is, hey, I'll go get a word from Lord, from God. And, and Ahab just calls in his prophets. Well, he didn't have any prophets of Yahweh. They're by and large dead, right? He's been trying to terminate them. Jehoshaphat doesn't realize this. So Ahab just calls in his local prophets and says, well, we're thinking about going to battle. Is that a good idea? They say, oh, that's a good idea, king. And he turns around and says, see, Jehoshaphat, I've gotten a positive word. Let's go. Jehoshaphat says, wait, 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 wait. I wanted a word from Yahweh. Don't you have anybody who hears the word of Yahweh? And and, uh, uh, Ahab says, well, okay, there is this one guy named Micaiah. Okay? Um, But the problem is, while Micaiah gives Yahweh's word, he never says anything good to me. I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. Jehoshaphat says, we want the word of the Lord. So you can tell Ahab just steps out of the room and he says to his messengers, okay, go get Micaiah. He's got to come in here and give the word of the Lord. But you tell him he better say the right thing. So the messengers go to get Micaiah and they say, okay, God's got, or, or Ahab needs to get a word from Yahweh. You're the guy who talks to Yahweh. I, I'm, I'm not surprised he did not send for Elijah. <laughs> but he goes to Micaiah and he says, he knew Elijah wouldn't be so pliable. He says, Micaiah, you come and you give the word for, for Yahweh and it better be that it's okay for the king to go to battle. Okay, that's what the word of Yahweh needs to be. So Micaiah comes in and, um, whoops, I, I didn't have put it in there. Let me tell you the story. So Micaiah comes in and the king says, okay, we're thinking about going to battle against Aram. Uh, is Yahweh going to help us? Is this a good thing to do? And Micaiah says, very sarcastically, oh yeah, king, oh, that's the thing to do, buddy. And we know it's sarcastic because Ahab's response is, why are you mocking me? Don't mock me. Don't come in here with this show. And oh, you know, and you can tell Micaiah saying, well, they told me to say that. Oh, yeah, king, go, baby, go. And uh, uh, the king says, I want you to just lay it straight. And he says, oh, you really do? Okay, you go, you die. That's the word from Yahweh. And King Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, I told you he never says anything nice to me. That's in the text, y'all. I'm not making it up. That's what he says. So um, Ahab ignores him. 
because he doesn't listen to Yahweh anyway, goes into battle and he dies. Um, now, next week, oh, Ahaziah is the son of Ahab. He falls to the upper room. Uh, this is kind of cool, but we don't really have much time for it. Um, uh, I'll just tell you this. After Ahab dies, his son Ahaziah becomes king. His son falls through the roof of the house. And he's laid up in bed and he wants to get word. And he says, go ask Baal Zebub. Zebub uh, means um, <laughs> flies. Lord of the Flies. Not lost on William Golding. That's why he named his book Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub is our word we get from it. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. And if you think about it, Satan is kind of Lord of the Flies because they just buzz around dead and decayed meat and garbage. And that's his lordness. But back then, um, Beelzebub or Baal Zebub was uh, uh, viewed as, as another Baal aspect, uh, a lord of the earth and the flies and things of that nature. And so Ahaziah wants to get a word from, Ahaz, from Beelzebub. Instead, the messenger bumps into Elijah who says, Hey, forget Beelzebub. Let me tell you what Yahweh says. Yahweh says, you're going to die. And he does. Now, here are our points to take home. First of all, Yahweh is the one true God. And that's true whether you and I worship him or not. You can make your choice and I can make my choice on who we want to be the God of our lives. Whether we want it to be our religion, whether we want it to be our pleasure, whether we want it to be our money, whether we want it to be our purpose, whether we want it to be our spouse, our children. You decide, I decide what we want to live for and what we want to dictate our lives. But it doesn't change the fact that Yahweh is God. We can just choose to follow it or we can follow something else. Um, second point, uh, the period was emphasis on point one. Second point, being sullen and angry leads to no good. It might get you a vineyard, but ultimately Ahab and Jezebel die and the dogs do lick their blood up off the streets. Next point, don't marry a Jezebel. She was a really bad woman. She might've been a hottie or something that attracted his eye, but she was not a good woman. As for the younger people in here. Next point. Live your life around Yahweh. Not around the things you make Lord. Let Yahweh be the center of your life, not the things you make Lord. Next point. Worship the God of the universe and not the Lord of the flies. Final point. God's not always an earthquake. You want to hear the voice of God? There's a lesson that we learned today that He doesn't always speak in the big winds and in the big fires and in the big earthquakes. God can speak to you in a gentle whisper. See, the lesson itself is a gentle whisper today. Because God truly does speak to us. We don't come here just to get biblical knowledge. We come here to find out what the Lord of the universe wants to say to us and how He wants us to change our lives. And if you're quiet and if you're still, he does speak to you. And he tells you where he wants you to move and how he wants you to change. What he wants to cultivate and draw out. And where he wants to water and fertilize your life. If you ignore him, you ignore him. And you're lesser and I'm lesser because of it. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for who you are. 
Yahweh, we bow before you and proclaim you the one true and only God, worthy of our worship. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Three in one. Yet one for us. Lord, as you speak to us, would you make us sensitive to your whisper? In Jesus' name, amen.